I feel like, hey, there still needs to be a foundation for young men to be great men. It's unfortunate that the history and the reasoning and the foundation always gets forgotten when people feel like they need to you know, change it. And the purpose of it is the same today as it was then, and it should remain. Probably the most important thing you can give any child, and that's self-discipline. Self-discipline is probably the biggest gift you can give. And, you know, and sometimes parents need help with that. Wait a minute, my kid is spending a majority of their life with teachers teaching a curriculum that's never been vetted by parents. You're a man living in the modern world in a time when men and manhood are not what they once were. You live life on your own terms. You're self-sufficient. You think for yourself and you march to the beat of your own drum. When life knocks you down, you get back up because in your gut, you know that's what men do. You're a badass and a warrior. And on the days when you forget, we are here to remind you who you really are. Welcome to Sovereign Men Podcast, where we aim to make men masculine. Again, I'm your man, Nikki Ballou. We've got a very special guest lined up for you today. Uh, today's guest is a, a veteran. Uh, this man has become one of the top thought leaders when it comes to learning how to protect yourself out there in the world. He's the author of a number of uh, best-selling books, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm going to mess up the title of it because the book's not in front of me, but a uh, uh, hundred deadly skills uh, is, is one of them, I believe, and it's uh, it's really a fantastic book. I read it a while back, and uh, I'm excited to have him here to talk about things uh, relevant to men and masculinity. Welcome to the show, Clint. Hey, thanks for having me, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. <laughs> so, Clint, um. We're living in a time, as we said off camera, that I think the forces of darkness are really doing their darndest to extinguish traditional masculinity. You know, they've been saying things like masculinity is toxic and that men aren't really men anymore. They're trying to confuse little kids about their gender. And I, I believe a big part of that is because they realize that if strong masculine men are around, it's going to be harder for them to get their shenanigans going and to take over our, our, our way of life and our society. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I think, uh, I think some things have definitely changed over the years, especially recently. Um, you know, the, the one conversation I had mo most recently place to this was the Boy Scouts of America, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in scouting, and I did it overseas. My troop was very active doing all the fun stuff that, you know, um, young men should be doing. And, you know, the conversation I literally had two or three days ago, it's like, what, you know, I just don't understand how they were, how they let politics and social pressures change the dynamic of something that has a history that goes back to, you know, right out of World War II, right? I mean, it, Boy Scouts weren't invented ever to be something for, you know, everyone. It was created out of World War II by a British spy so that we could prepare young men to be tough men and good soldiers in the future if there was ever another world war, right? Yeah. And it was all started in England. You know, the, the Scouts began there. And literally 
started by a British spy so that, hey, we, let's, set, let's set all our future fighters up to be well-rounded and squared away before they even get to fighting age. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's unfortunate that the history and the reasoning and the foundation always gets forgotten um, when it's time, you know, when people feel like they need to, you know, change it. And it's like, you know, the purpose of it is the same today as it was then and it should remain, you know, and, and it's not that girls can't do it, but they girls already were doing fine with the Girl Scouts. And by the way, they were actually making way more money when they came up with the idea of Girl Scout cookies, right? So the Boy Scouts didn't need like the change, you know what I mean? What they needed to do was just take some advice from the Girl Scouts, you know, they didn't need to go and say, all right, we're just going to include everybody. And, you know, and, and then of course now, you know, it's, it's got a, a thousand unfortunate, you know, um, criminal investigations going on with, with troop leaders and molesting kids and this and that. And, you know, it almost sounds like the Catholic church, but yeah. it's, <laughs> I just think that the changes were just unnecessary. And, and the most baffling thing to me is you had Robert Gates, who was the, you know, secretary of defense while I was in, he was the director of the CIA. He's a Texan, Texas A&M grad. And when he took over the Boy Scouts of America, he's the guy that let it all change, you know, and I, it's just unfortunate, but I feel like, Hey, there still needs to be a foundation for young men to be great men. And we're losing those foundational um, organizations and products and, and, and it's leaving uh, all young men and kids with really nothing to choose from now. Right. I mean, what else is there, you know, that was laying a good foundation for boys to become great young men, you know, there's nothing, right. There's nothing out there. Um, yeah, there is an organization, a buddy of mine, his name's uh, Ryan Mickler. He, he has a men's podcast called order of men. And he told me that there is a much smaller organization that is based on the traditional principles of the scouts. I forget the name of it, but I think there's only 25,000 young men that are in it all across the United States. I mean, the boy scouts was, truly a national organization, national in scope. Uh, I remember Ross Perot um, said yeah. in one of his interviews that um, they asked him, what's your proudest accomplishment? Because he was a multi-billionaire at the time. He said, I made Eagle Scout. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, like, and they're going, what, what, what? Eagle Scout? Yeah, well, that's, so that, that's the top rank of the Boy Scouts. That's my proudest accomplishment. I made Eagle Scout. Right. I mean, this is a dude who made billions and billions of dollars. And it just goes to show you how important it is for, for boys to be raised in a, in a, in a certain way. You know, you know? Um, I've got two sons. They're um, teenage boys. One's 14, one's 16. Um, I do everything in my power to raise them to be uh, masculine men. And compared to a lot of young boys, they're doing much, much better. But damn, I wish I could send them into something like the Scouts to toughen them up and and teach them some basic skills they're going to need to learn just to be able to get out there and survive. Uh, if you know, the apocalypse hit us next week, as an example. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, man. I think it's important that, you know, it's, at the end of the day, what scouting did for me and also going the Eagle scout path was, you know, 
it, it gave you life skills and set you up with probably the most important thing you can give any child and that's self-discipline. You know, as parents, we say no, 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 until a child can say no to themselves. And at that point, they've achieved self-discipline, right? And then with that comes starting and finishing things, right? Whatever that is, projects, merit badges, you know, then that leads to finishing high school, then that leads to finishing college. And that, you know, so self-discipline is probably the biggest gift you can give. And, you know, and sometimes parents need help with that. And it's good that there's another organization. I didn't know about that, that, uh, you know, Order Man talked about, but um, I'd love to know what that is. But I'm also the father of a daughter. And so I've always said, hey, you know, I can teach my daughter everything I would teach a boy, and that's cool. But, you know, you can't really flip that around, right? <laughs> you can't teach yeah. a boy everything you teach a girl and yeah. expect that to be cool. <laughs> you could, but you might be, you know, <laughs> pushing the well, limits. Listen, um, my, um, my lady is a... Um, it, 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 they, we call her the feminine David Goggins because she does these crazy 12 hours on a treadmill world record setting runs. She's done them three times and she set three Guinness world records doing it. Okay. Wow. She's a blonde girly girl though. Okay. Yeah. She can do a lot of stuff. Yeah. I, I did the first hour with her the first time. And I said, you're on your own from here on sweetheart. Me, I'm into sprinting and lifting weights. That's, that's my deal. But um, there's things that I'm into that she isn't into, you know, um, I like camping. I like going out in the woods and setting fires and cooking food on fires. She doesn't, she's not into it. She hates when I, 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 I go out with the men, uh, twice a month, winter or summer, doesn't matter. We set up a fire, we stand around the fire and we have a, a real honest to goodness, man to man conversation, right. About real issues. And sometimes there's a man who'll come over. He's in charge of food. He'll bring some skewers. He'll put uh, some sirloin steaks, some pork on those skewers. He'll cook them over the fire and we'll eat them. I, I think it's great. I think it's one of the most yeah. incredible things I get to experience at this stage in my life. But she's not into it. And whenever I come, come back and I'm smelling a smoke, she goes, go sleep over there. <laughs> you smell the smoke, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. There's, a, there's a, you know, just kind of on that note, you know, it's hanging out with the guys and, you know, probably one of the coolest things um, is, you know, one of my deployments, obviously I'm with, you know, my buddies and, uh, you know, probably one of the most memorable moments was going to a restaurant called Carnivore, right? Nice. In Nairobi, Kenya. And we roll in there and it's the same setting, but totally different, obviously. They have every single animal on a stake leaning over this massive house size bonfire <laughs> and it's like the whole animal hanging on that you know and then they come by it takes two two men to hold you know the skewer with this huge chunk of meat on it and they shave it off onto your plate right i mean oh, it's just I total, it. yeah and you look around and there's not very yeah there's you know it's mostly a bunch of dudes hanging out and they're just eating meat with their fingers and being a bunch of carnivores <laughs> awesome. i love it yeah it's funny it's funny you know um we're doing a what we call an overnight where a, a group of us men we go rent a place and um 
you know, we do, we do some man shit together. And uh, one of the men said, look, we should get a lamb and cook it on a spit. And I'm like, that sounds freaking cool. He said, okay, every man needs to bring a fixed blade knife, a sharp one, because you're going to have to use the knife to shave off the meat onto your plate. I'm like, damn, I'm in. Let's go. Let's make that happen. I'm, I'm all over yeah. it. And, and he said, look, if you've never done this before, there's got to be somebody there for four hours watching that damn thing. <laughs> you can't just go away and come back. I'm like, okay, okay, we'll make sure all that happens. But I, I think that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, that'll be good. I, I, we have the same. I've got my buddies. We get together a couple times a year. It's important, you know, like yeah. you got get together and uh, we usually meet on top of a mountain, right? We'll pick different national parks with, with whatever the biggest, whatever the tallest, or whatever top, the highest piece of elevation, that's where we'll end up and meet there. And we'll, some of us have, you know, you know, tripped out vans. Some of us just come old school with tents, but either way, you, you converge, you know, and then you hang out for a couple of days, you know, you're in nature. I mean, you can't beat that. And you just, you know, you share a good time with guys that, you know, you have a bond or a connection with. And, you know, it's just a good reminder, you know, it's just good to get out in the open and, and do those kinds of things to make you appreciate, you know, some of the things you got back home. Yeah, I, I like the sound of that. That sounds like a lot of fun. We've never done it on a mountain, but I'll, I'll run that by the men for the next one. We'll do another one probably in six <laughs> yeah. months. We'll say, okay, let's go to the top of mountain, boys. <laughs> so, Clint, what do you think we need to do to help the younger generation of men? Because a lot of men our age definitely need to be around men, around solid men, and to be reminded of masculinity and what that means. But they were raised with that. Younger generation of men aren't being raised with that. You go into schools right now, for the last 10, 15 years, the very idea of masculinity is abhorrent to these teachers. So how can we help the younger generation of men teach them the right things? Man, I think, I think it starts with parenting, you know, because... Let's face it, parents decide what school boards teach. And it's funny that we really didn't take control of that until these last couple of years. It's like people finally woke up and went, wait a minute, my kid is spending a majority of their life with teachers, teachers teaching a curriculum that's never been vetted by parents, right? So I know here in Texas, there's been some controversy to curriculum and parents finally saying, no, you know, it's my tax dollars that pay a superintendent salary along with the teachers and everybody else. And if you think for a second, we don't get to say what we want taught, you're wrong. And so it's, uh, there's been a 180. I think it takes parents to one, go voice your opinion to a school board. They have to listen. And if there's a whole bunch of parents, well, now you've got the power of what's being taught to your kids, considering they're spending eight hours a day for 12 years with teachers, right? Not with their parents. So I think that's number one. Number two, I think dads really have to start taking more ownership in, you know, 
what they say and what they teach their kids, right? Especially their young boys. And, um, and, and it's funny, like, it, this is a, a little kind of, you know, business, but when I released The Rugged Life, which is all the skills that everyone should know these days, um, when I would do a post, if I said lost dad skills or a book full of skills your dad didn't know how to teach you, <laughs> right? It was interesting to watch the Amazon meter on sales, right? They, it, it, using those words as part of the marketing, but was 100% the truth about that book, the sales went up that day, right? So when you talk about analytics, obviously there is a desire for dads out there to go and learn what they need to teach, you know, their young men, right? So I think, I think they all know it. I think there's a lot of dads out there like, man, I don't know how to teach my boy what needs to be taught. Um, and so I think there's a market, I think there's, there's interest in trying to kind of turn things around back to what I would call normal again, but yeah. it's very difficult to navigate when there's so much, you know, information and, and crap out on the internet. Um, so I think, you know, number one for dads that are listening, you, you've got to go and voice your opinion to school boards and make sure that what's taught you agree with. And then number two, you know, get off the couch, get off your devices and get up and grab your sons and go do things. Even if you don't know how, go do the unknown together. And in that you are representing how we all became men, right? It's like, pick up a stick and hit shit with it. Pick up a rock and throw <laughs> rocks at, in the water, whatever. <laughs> Go caveman and figure it out, right? So it's uh, there's huge benefits. Even if you don't know what you're doing, get out there and just figure it out together. And I think that in itself will set the boys up for a great future. Yeah, I really like what you said. You know, it made me think I do a lot of stuff with my boys. They're both in sports. Uh, and and I'm, I thank God they're both in sports because sports forces them to be disciplined. Uh, you know, being in Canada, one of my kids plays hockey, double A. He's a goaltender. Um, and it's the toughest job in hockey. It, yeah. If he if they win. OK, they won. If they lose, it's all his fault. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> That's yeah. good pressure, though, man. That it is, is great it is. for the future. Yeah. He's really tough on himself. I mean, last night, he's 14 years old. You know, he's in grade nine. Last night, um, it was 9.30 at night. He was studying for a geography test today. And he said, Dad, please, please, please help me study. I'm like, oh, God, I'm tired. Okay, but fine. What do you want me to do? So he hands me his, uh, his Microsoft Surface, and he says, okay, these are the questions. Ask, ask me, and the answers are there. So I spent like half hour, 45 minutes doing that with him. And I was just glad to see that he cared enough to want to, you know, get a good mark to stay up late and study. And that was fantastic. And, and a, a buddy of mine, he's uh, part of the work I do with men. He and a bunch of other men went to um, a place here in Toronto that teaches you how to make your own axe. So you pay 400 bucks. At the end of the day, you come out with an axe you know, a usable ax. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. that might be a cool thing to take my two sons to, you know, just uh, say, Hey boys, let's go learn how to make an ax. 
That's right, man. That, I think that's great. I mean, I did just this summer. I went and did where you make your own, you know, longbow. Oh, and cool. Was, it's, it's four days of hard work, but that's definitely another one that, uh, you know, father and son adventure. Um, and then here in the U.S., I'm sure it's popular up there. They have all these, you know, like axe throwing kind of bars, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a few. Chunk axe, it's like instead of dart boards, you've got, you know, axe throwing boards. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's all good stuff, man. Yeah, I think there's an age, uh, there's a minimum age required, at least in Ontario, to do that. I, I don't think I could take my 14-year-old. I might be able to take my 16-year-old, but uh, that, that's a cool idea. I think they'd both be into that. Um, oh yeah. 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 No, it's good. I, I also think that it's important for voices like yours to be heard, you know, cause there's a lot of men out there, young men out there that are looking for guidance and the type of guidance they're getting is from a group of men that are themselves, you know, not, not past 30, 35, you know, they've maybe made a lot of money. They've, uh, gone to bed with a lot of women and that's the message they're given to a lot of young men I, I, I don't know if you heard of this dude andrew tate or these guys in um, south florida that call themselves fresh and fit or this guy rollo tomasi wrote a book called the rational male their thesis seems to be for men to uh go out there just focus on themselves become the most successful best version of themselves that part's fine and they're, they're basically telling them no don't get married and you know, go be with as many women as you want. And they, they preach this concept called the high value male. And what they say makes a man a high value man is that, you know, women want him. Apparently he's successful enough that a lot of women want him and he can, he can have as many women as he wants. And I just think that's so bloody short-sighted and it's, it's young man's energy. It's stallion energy. You know, when you're at a certain stage in your life before you're ready to settle down, but I don't think young men should be getting this message is the primary thing they ought to focus their lives on. Because, you know, if men don't marry women and pair bond and create families and have kids, the human race is sunk. You know, and I'm wondering yeah. if you know about these guys and what your thoughts are on this. Um, you know, I've heard about that guy and I, this is the first time I'm hearing his messaging. And, um, you know, it, it kind of goes in line with, unfortunately, a lot of this, uh, internet education, you know, it's, man, the internet is, is, is a powerful thing, right? It's allowing you and I to do this interview and it's got so many benefits, but man, it also allows so much garbage to somehow rise to the top. And then that garbage becomes, you know, biblical. It's weird, right? It's like, how the fuck did this guy get... <laughs> get anywhere. And I, so I don't know. I don't know much about Tate. I've heard the name and I think I've seen probably some crap on the internet, but you know, it goes back to something else I always say. And, and I think is important having served, you know, most, most young men, you know, serve themselves. Very few actually serve something greater than that. And so if there was any messaging that, that I support that hundred percent counters is, Hey, don't be the, you know, the few, be one of the few that serve and don't be what the majority is who just end up serving themselves. Right. Guys like that. I love to go. What, what have you done really outside of serving yourself? 
probably nothing. What have you done for like the greater good of this country or even, you know, you know, other countries? Because God knows us as SEALs, you know, there's a lot of operations that I've been on that was for the greater good of many countries. I wasn't, I was operating on behalf of not just the United States, but, you know, partner nations as well. And so, and it feels good and it makes you appreciate a whole lot of other things in life when you serve outside of yourself. And, you know, I'm not a, a religious person, but, you know, some people serve God for the same reasons, because it's outside of yourself. But I think it's important you find something that you're going to serve that is greater than you instead of serving yourself. And it sounds like these guys are just selfish fucking pricks, which is typical to like the Miami area. Yeah, buddy, I'm telling you what. Tate lives in Romania. I I spent a bit of time studying him because I didn't want to, I didn't want to just be somebody who heard very little and spattered off an opinion. I think there's way too much of that going on in, in the world today. And there's a lot of his story, which is good. And there's a lot of uh, what he preaches that is good. He talks to men and he tells them to become disciplined and to stop, you know, laying on the couch. And he tells men to work out and he says, look, don't, don't, don't be, dep- you can't be depressed if you're pumping iron in the gym. That's one of the things he says, which I think is it's true. It's good. You, but there's, before he got banned, all his photos on Instagram were of him driving his supercars. You know what I mean? And he had a whole bunch of interviews that he'd do um, where he'd be controversial on purpose. There's nothing wrong with being controversial. I'm pretty darn controversial, especially in this day and age, although maybe 20, 30 years ago, I wouldn't have been. But the stuff that comes out of his mouth when it comes to relationships, he goes, well, listen, if you're a high value man, a woman, woman shouldn't care and isn't going to really care if you if you go cheat on her. That's not a big deal. That doesn't mean I care about that woman. That's the way he put it. And I go, have you actually ever been in a long term relationship with a woman? Because I can tell you that no woman that I've ever been in a long term relationship with would put up with cheating. They just wouldn't do it. They, it doesn't matter what else was going right. They'd be upset. And if even if somebody said they were OK with it it would hurt them inside. It hurt them very deeply. And I, I don't understand why a man who's obviously intelligent believes in that. And then these other folks, these folks in Miami, the Fresh and Fit Boys and Rolo Tomasi and those guys, yeah, they're all about themselves. They're all about, uh, you know, uh, saying what's great about them and what's great about being a man. And, you know, that women are there basically <laughs> to do whatever the hell the man wants. It almost sounds. And I, I just can't, I, I can't stand the fact that there's so many people that are following these guys, so many young men, because I don't want these young men. I don't want these young men to be influenced by the culture and all this toxic masculinity propaganda. And I don't want them to be influenced by these guys who are basically completely the opposite and saying, ah, screw it. Screw everybody. Just take care of yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I wish I knew more about them, but it sounds like, you know, they're definitely going down and selling the wrong path. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, like, hopefully <laughs> there are some young men out there that are smart enough to see that it's literally just propaganda. It's a lifestyle that is probably a hundred percent fake, right? We all know that what's posted 
is typically not reality. And my guess is a majority of those guys that are representing their life, like it's like, it's the greatest are probably actually unhappy, right? They just, they, they obviously have some empty holes in their soul that they don't know how to fill. And so they're trying to figure out how to fill it by, with whatever bad decisions, stupidity, or whatever it is they got going on. And I think once again, it goes back to social media. You know, I tell people all the time, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm on it, but I don't like it. You know, it's business for me. Um, and I, but I ultimately think it's evil, right? I think it, it's so, like I said, it's so easy for garbage to somehow float to the top without any vetting process whatsoever. And if, if you post the most and you post or you're, you know, taboo, then all of a sudden you're getting all the views and you're getting all the likes. But if you put just good, solid message out then nobody hears you, right? It gets drowned out by all the drama and that's unfortunate. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that social media is something you do because of business, because that's how I feel about social media too. And I agree with you. I think social media has become evil. I mean, it's got, it's got its uses for business, 100%. It's a great way yeah. for people to um, to know who you are. And I'm I'm from Iran originally. I don't I don't think I told you that. Um, but I'm a Christian from Iran. My family left right after the revolution. And you know, right now in Iran, things are hard. I don't know if you heard the story of that young woman who was murdered by the morality police, Masa Amini, uh, and all these Iranian women are the ones that are going out into the streets and protesting against the regime. And the regime has killed 200 of them. And the protests are not abating in any way, shape, or form. And social media could do a whole heck of a lot to give voice to these folks. You know, if the folks that ran Twitter and Facebook and Instagram uh, would, would say, you know what, this is a cause for good in the world. We're going to give the people of Iran, a bigger voice, an outsized voice. We're going to let more people know about this. That'd be a good thing. Unfortunately, they're not doing that. And I, I, I was on a Canadian um, uh, news program talking about this and talking about why Canada ought to do more and the Prime Minister of Canada should uh, designate the Revolutionary Guards in Iran as a terrorist group. Uh, and it's a good thing these guys have a big platform because a few thousand people saw that and, and and that was great for me and great for my brand and great for business. Not that I got on it for my brand. I just felt horrible for the people in my country and these young women. But social media could be doing a lot to forward good in the world. And all they're doing is forwarding their own financial agenda. And that's what I don't like about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. It's um, it, it, it picks and chooses uh, who gets to get all the attention. It's really, <laughs> you know, I, I initially, you know, you look at social media, it's like awesome because it's like, wow, it gives the average person the ability to have a billboard and it hundred percent supports entrepreneurship and all that. But, you know, obviously it's gotten so big now that man, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard for good people to, you know, get anywhere on there. Um, when you've got, when a majority of people for some reason are attracted to more of, like I said, that taboo drama, 
crazy stuff, right? Crazy wins when it comes to the internet. Crazy wins. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. That's actually true. Crazy wins. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so, Clint, did your dad name you after Clint Eastwood? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, you know, I asked my mom. I was like, so how'd you come up with Clint? And she's like, oh, I was a, like, was a baseball player she liked or something that nobody's ever heard <laughs> <That's> of. <awesome. laughs> I think that was it. But um, yeah, I wish uh, it'd be kind of cool to either be Clint Eastwood or Clint Black. You Clint know? Black's pretty anyway, cool too. Clint Black, I, I don't know who that is. He's a country, country singer down here. I love Clint Black, man. He's awesome. He was yeah. he was on The Apprentice, The Celebrity Apprentice with Donald Trump. Oh, really? Was he? Yep, uh, yeah, he was. He didn't win, uh, okay. but he was on the show. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm sure he was out quick because he's not the kind of guy that's going to sit there and play games, right? No. No, he wasn't out too quick, but, you know, he didn't make it to the final round. He wasn't devious enough. <laughs> Let's put it this way. That's the, right. The, the that's folks right. that win that are a little bit ruthless. Um, I've had another yeah. Emerson on the show. Uh, do you know Ernest Emerson of Emerson Knives? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've, I've met him in passing but at, at, like, SHOT Show, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah. He makes some awesome <clears throat> knives, eh? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up, you know, when Benchmade came out with the CQC7. Yep. Which was, like, the first, you know, cool, like, folding knife with this, you know, Tonto, you know, tip on it and... Yeah. And then, you know, and then, you know, it was designed by Emerson. And then that was the point in which he broke away and kind of started putting out his own knives yeah. um, under his own name. And, and I followed him, you know, as soon as he broke away, I, I was like followed right there with him, you know. And, you know, and, you know, what's amazing is how, how back then there was no Internet when I knew about Emerson. Yeah. Right. So. Think about that. Any of the any of those brands and any of those guys that you actually knew their name prior to the internet, you, you, you got to applaud them. Like, mm-hmm. how the hell did they market themselves to where some average kid in Dallas, Texas, knew about you know that the CQC seven was designed by Emerson? <laughs> you know, because I mean, then today, you know, you've got these platforms, and I'm like, man, I can't even get any headway on these damn things. And that guy didn't even have that, and uh, is globally known. You know what I mean? It's pretty cool. It is really cool. He, um, I'm, I'm wearing <laughs> one of his shirts because he designed shirts as well. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it. And I've got one of his knives here. I. I I'm a collector, so this is his police yeah. utility knife. It's a it's a beautiful little blade. Oh um, yeah, That's it's got awesome. the wave feature, although I don't know why because this is a fixed blade. But um, yeah, he's uh, he's pretty great. And what's really cool about Ernest Emerson is I actually think he's the best knife designer in the world. Not because his knives are the prettiest or anything like that, but his knives are the most functional knives. You get an Emerson knife and you buy it for a particular purpose, it'll do that job pretty much better than any other knife. He made a, um, a folding steak knife. And the reason he made it is he likes to eat steak. So he'd go into restaurants and he hated the restaurant knives that they gave him to, uh, <laughs> to, to cut the meat. And he said, well, I want to bring one of my own knives, but the tactical knife looks kind of crazy to pull out in the restaurant to cut a piece of meat. So he made a, a folding steak knife and he, you know, he put it on, on social media. I watched the reasoning behind it and he said, look, 
this thing will cut your meat better than any other knife out there. I said, okay, I'm going to order me that knife. So I ordered me that Emerson folding steak knife. And I got to tell you, now I refuse to use anything else. It's the best knife for cutting steak out there, bar none. Uh, <laughs> and and it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And every other knife of his that I own is just well-designed, fits in the hand really nicely. The thinking that went into the material for the handles, the material for the blade, all of that is just first rate. And it, it's good to be around somebody who's the best in the world at something. And he's quite the philosopher. He actually did a talk at a blade show called In Search of the Uncommon Man. So he's been given a lot of thought to what it takes to be a man and masculine. So I brought him on the show a couple of times and he talked about that. And he also, he, he wrote a book um, uh, called uh, Active Shooter, right? Uh, and it's a new book. It came out just when the Uvalde shootings happened. And I brought him on the show to talk about that and you know why, why he wrote that book and why people ought to read it. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I know him from 100% quality knives, right? I mean, you can't knock the guy. Never heard a bad thing. And I never had a bad experience with one of his knives. And, I, and I'm one of those people, like when I was younger, it was Spyderco. And they had this folder called the Matriarch that was designed like for cutting throats. I mean, that thing was evil. It looks like this evil claw when you unfolded it <laughs> and it was serrated and you knew like, man, this would just, this would literally take somebody's head off in, in, in one stroke, you know? And, uh, and then, you know, then you find out about Benchmade or found out about Benchmade, then specifically that CQC7. And then that's where the transition went from Spyderco to Benchmade, then to Emerson, and then through experience, you know, in the military as a SEAL, you know, there's, uh, you, you basically learn, you know, that a folding knife is essentially a broken knife, right? Yeah. And so then I switched uh, all fixed blades, um, even to this day, obviously I carry a fixed blade and no more folders, but I never had a bad experience with any one folder to be able to say, yeah, you know, a folding knife is essentially a broken knife. Yeah. Um, but I transitioned because you don't ever want to run into that problem at the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> so sure yeah, stuff. anyway, it's a, um, I, I never heard it put that way before. I heard it uh, be called a compromise before, but it's, it's basically a, a broken knife. That, that kind of makes sense in a, in a, in a life or death situation, you don't want that thing to break. So when you moved to fixed blade knives, what kind of knives were you into at that point in time? Let's see. The first ones we were actually getting issued were like the, for, for one year, and I tell you what, it was, it was like one of my favorites. Glock reinvented the dagger. I know, crazy, right? And wow. when, so in the SEAL teams, you know, you just you'll show up to work and there's, you know, if there's 16 guys in a platoon, you'll walk into your platoon space and there'll be 16 new knives sitting on the table. Right. And you're just like, Oh, another new knife. Oh, another <laughs> new, some latest, greatest pair of boots and latest, greatest, you know, GPS. And you're really spoiled. I mean, it's a, it's, it's <laughs> awesome. Right. So that one year was this badass redesigned. It was like basically a modern version of, you know, the SAS or the SOCOM, you know, the original dagger, special yeah. operations SOG dagger, right? Yeah. And um, and I carried that, that thing for years. That was the first fixed blade. And, and, and ironically enough, it was made by Glock. So strange. But 
they had put a lot of thought in, you know, it had the heart, it had a Kydex sheath, you know, a hard plastic sheath, which was yeah. kind of new back then. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was double edged, you know, it was blacked out, you know, nice. and it was streamlined. So it really worked, you know, whether I was in the field or whether you were doing a dive, it was a very universal blade to have on you um, that you could count on. And then, um, then you, then we started buying custom, you know, like once you get to like, you know, a place like seal team six, well then now you're, you, you've got even bigger budgets and you're carrying Winklers and all of your high end custom blades um, designed by, you know, legends. Right. So, but yeah, I've had um, the Glock fixed blade and then you had what I have after, I think SOG, we were getting some, some of yeah, the SOG yeah. blades early on, but it was also before war, right? Before war, your knife was more of a tool. You never thought of it as like a, you know, like this backup, you know, like the backup to the backup. Right. Um, and then once the wars kicked off, then, you know, you really looked at your blade as like, wait a minute. No, this is, this is more than a tool. This is something that's going to save your life in a, in an unfortunate close quarter encounter. Right. Because if you're, in our world, if you're going hand to hand or any of that crazy stuff that Hollywood likes to exploit, yeah. something's gone terribly wrong, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you've gone from rifle to pistol to now I'm, you know, suddenly in some hand to hand thing, then you've been caught off guard or something bad. So then, you, which does happen, right? You do get ambushed, you do turn a corner and you don't expect somebody to be there, whatever, whatever the case is. Um, and there's an opportunity to go to blades, then you're going to go to your blade because it's faster to deploy sometimes than, you know, drawing, drawing your pistol, really. I mean, especially these days in a concealed carry environment, if I'm out on the range, you know, it, you know, the average guy can get to a sub second draw with first round deployment, right. Wow. And from a conceal, right. You can get probably any, any guy that practices enough can get, you know, sub second. Now, when you go to, okay, I'm carrying my blade, I'm much faster deploying that blade than I am deploying a pistol, right? Sure. Um, yeah. So once you actually start timing it and you start actually doing it here in the civilian world, you know, I'm in Texas where we have constitutional carry. So everybody's carrying a concealed gun. Um, but the reality is if you're face to face with someone, it may make sense to uh, deploy that blade because you're going to get it out and inflict damage far faster than you would deploying your pistol and pulling the trigger. Right. So anyway, uh, the, no. the fixed blade is now a, is without a doubt transitioned from the military with me to the civilian world as a daily everyday carry requirement because what you think, Hey, I can, I can end, something with my pistol it's like nah you probably end something much faster with your knife depending on the situation so you've got to almost got two tools to choose from totally different jobs and they both get deployed based on distance time environment you know a lot of a lot of stuff there but once you figure that out then you're like wow 
You know, there's two great tools that you should ha always have on you at all times. Tangent. So what now, type, tangent. it's a good tangent. I like it. This is good. This is the kind of stuff men need to know and learn about. What type of, yeah. what type of fixed blade do you carry these days? Um, so I have gone back and forth because I've got my favorites and, and a lot of times too, I'm just wanting to support um, my buddies, right? So I have uh, Dom Rosso Razorback. I have a Bill Rapier um, North Northman. Um, so for those listening, go look at Dynamis Alliance Razorback. And then you have... But my true favorite really has been Bill Rapier's, which is Amtac, American Tactical um, Amtac Blades. That thing, uh, both of those knives, by the way, have been or featured in Jack Carr's terminal list, which yeah, is yeah, on yeah. Amazon. So Jack is a good friend. Um, anyway, Love those guys. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'll go back and forth between those guys. And then I came out with my own knife, which is called the outlaw. And, uh, and I've been pushing that on my uh, websites for a little while too. So I kind of rotate between all of them kind of just, uh, but I think I'll to also, it's important for guys to be proficient, you know, with those different grips and different style knives, because the reality is if you get an altercation, your knife is not going to be exactly where you think it is, right? Sure. If you're carrying it inside the waistline, it's going to be twisted, turned. It's going to be sideways, you know? So you got to make sure, one, you've got a good retention clip on that sheath. you got to make sure the sheath and the knife have intimate contact and are really good together. Um, and then you've got to get used to drawing uh, as if you just did an obstacle course. And where, however it lie is how you need to be good at drawing it, right? Because if you find yourself on your back, you've got to be able to draw that knife. Or you find yourself pushed from behind and you're on your face, you've got to be able to draw that knife. Um, and the odds are it's never going to be where you want it to be. So you got to get good at that, right? And you got to yeah. be good at it with different sizes of blades and handles. And so that I kind of mix it up from time to time. Rather than the philosophy of, I carry the same thing every day so that I'm really good at it. <laughs> um, that's, that's another that's another philosophy it may work but i like to break i like to kind of you know i carry different pistols and i carry different blades you know because you know i think it's good to just be um comfortable with all of those variations and sizes uh in your waistline i want i want an outlaw knife man how do i order one <laughs> oh the outlaw you can get it over at violentnomad.com very manly violentnomad.com all right little, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm gonna check it out we'll my little sure. online shop feel free to check it out violentnomad.com <laughs> uh, do me a favor when i order it you know sign a little something for me like a certificate of authenticity or something i'd really love that um, all right i'll let them know man yeah i'll have to get your feedback since you're a knife connoisseur i'm a knife sure connoisseur hey then listen I'm not, I'm not a military vet so i, I don't have your your skill set on that but i love i love that's all right they're that's a lot okay. of fun they're a lot of fun so tell me a little bit uh, about your books let's kind of wrap wrap the episode up what made you decide to write your books in the first place and you know what is it that you think 
uh, men can get out of reading these books and, and learning from them? Well, uh, starting with the first question, the why, um, it was kind of a hap chance, right? I was one of those guys sitting in, you know, a SEAL Team 6 squadron space, watching Fox News and seeing some former Navy SEAL give his expert opinion. And I was always like, what a bunch of douchebags, right? Like, look at these guys getting out, exploiting our career. Well, anyway, I became one of those guys. <laughs> and so, you know, um, you know, and I, and I, but the thing was, I was like, you know, I'm not going to try and exploit based on, you know, like, okay, I went and did these operations and tell operational stories all the time. That's not the path I wanted to go. I didn't want to profit off of war or experiences in war like some guys, but I knew that, well, you know, I, I'd love to get out and, you know, give employees the skills they need to survive. So my first little book while I was still in was a three ring binder full of tips on how to blend in and not get targeted. In that book was, I ended up taking up, putting the name Escape the Wolf. And I would hand out these three ring binders for free. Uh, and then eventually I was like, man, I need to make this thing kind of look like a book probably, right? <laughs> so I sent it to this company that would take your, your Microsoft Word document and actually print it and give it a cover and a back. And now it looks like a book. So, and you could order them for, and then it cost me like a couple of, a couple of bucks, right? And so then I was handing that out for free. Well, anyway, long story short, it got handed out enough into the interagency world where it ended up in the hands of this retired FBI guy who was the global security director for the Wall Street Journal, right? And he calls me up and says, hey, I want you to take all the information in this little book I got, and I want you to turn it into e-learning. And I'm like, huh? What are you talking about? <laughs> he goes, if you turn your book into e-learning so that all my journalists can log in no matter where they are in the world and take your e-learning course, I'll buy it. And I was like, huh, okay. So, you know, I was like, I went and uh, I had a USAA credit card that I had managed to have good credit and had it up to a $60,000 limit. And I went to a, this curriculum, this e-learning company and uh, ironically enough, they happened to charge me exactly $60,000 to then create my e-learning. <laughs> and keep in mind, keep in mind, I didn't have a contract or anything with this guy, right? He just planted the seed and I was like, fuck it, I'm going to go give it a shot. And, uh, and so while I was finishing up my time in the Navy, I was developing this e-learning. How much a long time went by, right? I called the guy up and I said, hey, so... Uh, I put 60 grand on my credit card and developed this stuff for you. Uh, now what? He goes, let me see it. I was like, okay. I gave him the login information. He, he looked at it and it was super interactive. It was way ahead of its time. You could click on the screen. You could do all kinds of stuff and the screen would react. And it made it very, ex you know, an experience rather than a, than a curriculum. So that way it would be really sticky and people would remember the content for a long time. And uh, he loved it. And then he goes, all right, how much? And I was like, I don't know how much, how much, how much money you got. <laughs> and so, you know, and then from that day on, 
Escape the Wolf, the book was now Escape the Wolf, the company. And that was the first book. And, you know, that was my first business endeavor and still is what I do for a living now. And then that led to, all right, how do I give, if you've got companies that are willing to protect their employees with good training, there's more companies out there that do absolutely nothing for their employees. So then that's when the idea of providing skills to the average consumer. And I knew that in order to sell those skills, they had to be sexy. So a hundred deadly skills was the book that came out that uh, the goal was, was give the average person skills that their company would never pay for. How do I send someone to work prepared? Um, and so hundred deadly skills, you know, came out of the gate and, you know, it sat on the New York times list for like nine months. And, yeah. and then, so that's really what it boils down to. I feel like I am, I'm first a crisis management guy, but when you really look at what crisis management is, it's all about preparedness. It's all about being proactive, preemptive, and it all starts with skills. So I give skills to people through books and now I'm opening up what's called the ready room. The ready room is a place you can come and learn skills through awesome videos. Um, and so I love it. anyway, that's my, uh, that's my elevator pitch, buddy. Man, that's good. <laughs> I, I really like it. I didn't, I, I didn't know that story. And when I bring you on my business show, we'll delve into it a little deeper, but that's a really good story. Uh, I, I like what you've done. I like what you've created. Your books are great. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. In uh, September 2017, one of my best buddies who'd been a friend and a client, uh, someone walked into a high-end restaurant here in Toronto, high-end steakhouse, Michael's it's called, uh, and blew him away, just killed him, shot him four times. And you got to get, we got massive gun control here in Canada. It's not a thing that happens all that often, but he was murdered. He was, um, it, it was all over the news. And I, I got really depressed because there was, I, I didn't know who'd done it. It, it appeared to be a, a hit, like someone had been hired to yeah. shoot him, uh, a, a, who, who shot him four times and ran out. And um, one of my mentors, he, 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 he's an ex-Navy guy. He, he wasn't in the SEAL teams, but um, he said, look, you need to come and do this course and I'll come do it with you. And I said, what? He said, it's called Target Focus Training. The, the uh, guy who creates his name is Tim Larkin. He's an ex-military intelligence guy, and he teaches civilians how to uh, engage in personal protection. So I took the target focus training course, and um, you know he taught us things to do, how to um, how how to basically deal with someone who's attacking you. So if someone's like coming in to try to choke you, what to do? Taught us about all the weak points in the human body. I learned about you know the the throat, the Adam's apple, the eyes you know, the blood bags under at the bottom of the rib cage and all that jazz. And he said, if you, if you ever have like a, 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 somebody who's trying to kill you and you've got a weapon, just get him right under the rib cage, the blood will pull right out. He's, he's done all kinds of stuff like that. It's still, still with me. And I bought your book right after that. And I started to read it. Whenever I go outside, everybody thinks I'm crazy because I'm always scanning, looking for threats. <laughs> you know what I mean? This morning, my, yeah. my, my 16 year old, said, dad, can we go to the soccer stadium and, and, and practice? And I said, sure. It was pitch black when we were out, you know, <laughs> like, so I, I pull out the baseball bat. I scan the area. 
I see there's a couple of cars parked there. I'm going, I wonder who these, who are the folks in these cars, you know, and <laughs> it, it's just, it's just better to be prepared than not, you know? That's right. And, 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 and that's, I, I think what you're doing is important. I think it's, uh, you're doing God's work, brother. So for whatever it's worth, uh, God bless you for doing it. Thanks for coming on the show. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a business discussion with you too. I think that's going to be a fun one. Yeah. Well, hey, I appreciate you having me on my show. I appreciate your messaging and uh, thank you for your time. Yeah. God bless you, man. All right. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Man Podcast. If you're ready to take charge of your life and become the man you've always wanted to be, we invite you to join the movement at SovereignMan.ca.